This is I Made a Biology Podcast Help Me Study, and now I am starting the last unit in the SL syllabus, uh, beginning with 6.1, digestion. So the very first skill in this topic is the production of an annotated diagram of the digestive system. So be sure that you are able to do this. And now to go through the components of this. We have the esophagus, which is a hollow tube that connects the oral cavity to the stomach. So that's basically the entrance uh, into your mouth and then down through your uh, neck into your stomach. That's the esophagus. The movement through the esophagus is with the action of peristalsis, and we will definitely go into more detail of what that is in this episode. And then next, the stomach. This is a temporary storage tank where food is mixed by churning and the digestion of protein begins. Think of churning as a type of grinding and um, mixing as well as, uh, yeah, just grinding the food into mush, for lack of better words. That's really what it is. And in the stomach, the digestive Juices also create a very acidic environment. The pH is approximately 2. Then moving on to the small intestine. This is a long, highly folded tube where the food substances, so the nutrients, are absorbed. So this is essentially where everything that you eat goes and the good stuff that your body needs is absorbed from it. Moving on to the large intestine. This is where water and dissolved minerals are absorbed. So in the small intestine, nutrients were absorbed, and in the large intestine, water and minerals are absorbed. This consists of the ascending, transverse, and descending sigmodial colon, as well as the rectum. Now, moving on to the salivary glands. These are actually in your mouth, so this is at the very beginning of the digestive system and they release saliva to moisten the food um, with the enzymes that they contain, such as amylase, and that allows for the initiation of starch breakdown. So the key idea really is saliva in the salivary glands to moisten the food so that you can properly swallow it. Then the pancreas, um, this produces a broad spectrum of enzymes, and they're released into the small intestine via the duodenum. So the duodenum is simply the entrance of the small intestine, And um, we will also go into more detail of pancreatic enzymes in this topic. The pancreas also secretes hormones such as insulin and glucagon, and these regulate blood sugar concentrations. Moving on to the liver, the liver takes the raw materials absorbed by the small intestine and then uses them to make key chemicals. So what is absorbed by the small intestine will go to the liver for chemicals that the body needs. So its role is to detoxify, store, contribute to the metabolism, produce bile, and break down hemoglobin. Those are some of its key roles. So detoxification, storage, metabolism, bile production, and hemoglobin breakdown are all things that the liver participates in. And again, it takes the raw materials that the small intestine absorbs. And lastly, the gallbladder. This stores the bile that's produced in the liver, And the bile stored in the gallbladder will be released into the small intestine via the common bile duct. So the digestive system is surrounded by two layers of muscles, the longitudinal muscle and the circular muscle. 
the longitudinal muscles contract periodically, which moves the food continuously down the digestive system. And this is the process of peristalsis. The circular muscles contract and relax and then squeeze the chyme, which is what you call the, the substance that's been churned in the stomach. So you squeeze the chyme in both directions and that helps to mix the food and the digestive fluids thoroughly. So peristalsis is the principal mechanism of movement in the esophagus, but again it does occur throughout the stomach and the gut. The continuous movement of the longitudinal smooth muscle, which is the outermost muscle layer, allows the food to move along from the mouth to the anus. So you have to imagine this movement as if you were squeezing toothpaste or mayonnaise out of a tube, how you do it from the end towards um, the opening to move it forward. So you're moving the liquid forward. So in peristalsis, it's the same idea, except that the pressure and the contraction follows the food. And then the circular muscle is the inner layer. So you have the longitudinal on the very outside, and then you have the circular muscle um, in front of it. And the circular muscle does something known as segmentation. So what it does is it contracts and relaxes um, in order to move the chyme in both directions because that allows them to mix the food with the digestive juices properly. So what happens is if you imagine a, um, a pipeline, so you're, you're cinching in, in the middle of the pipeline, you're pressing down, and that's going to cause the chyme to separate, and then you're relaxing that, and then you're pressing down again on the other side. So you're essentially pushing your chyme back and forth so that you can break it down. And this is going to slow down peristalsis, but the movement through the intestine will still be happening. The food isn't just going to stay in the same part of the intestine the whole time. I strongly recommend that you look at the um, visuals on BioNinja or elsewhere to properly understand how the movements work. Now moving on to the chemical digestion, which is the different chemicals that are used in the different organs throughout the digestive system. So, so some examples of digestive enzymes include protease and endopeptidases, and these digest proteins or polypeptides. So proteases and endopeptidases will break down proteins into peptides into amino acids. And then there's amylase, which digests sugars. So that's mainly starch into maltose, for example. And nuclease will digest DNA and RNA. So they're going to make a nucleic acid into a nucleoside. And then lipase and bile salts will digest and emulsify fats. So lipase digests fats and bile salts emulsify fats. Emulsify is essentially making something into a solution or um, again, for lack of better words, mushing something into a solution. Um, so what lipase and bile salts do is they make a dietary fat, like a triglyceride, into a monoglyceride, so a fatty acid. So a triglyceride would be broken down into a fatty acid. So these digestive enzymes are mainly from uh, the pancreas. So proteases, endopeptidases, amylase, nuclease, and lipase are from the pancreas. And then the bile salts are, of course, from bile, which is in the liver. So now if we break down um, the breakdown of carbohydrates, proteins, lipids, and nucleic acids, um, we know that carbohydrate digestion is going to begin in the mouth because amylase is released from the salivary glands, and that's going to begin to digest starch. 
Amylase is also secreted by the pancreas, so it's co it comes from the salivary glands and the pancreas. And we remember that amylase, um, its role is to digest sugars. So amylase is secreted in the pancreas to continue the digestion of carbohydrates in the small intestine after having um, begun starch digestion in the mouth. Then another carbohydrate is cellulose, but humans don't possess any enzyme that can digest cellulose because this would be cellulase, and that's why cellulose passes through the body undigested. Moving on to proteins, protein digestion begins in the stomach. So carbohydrates began in the mouth and protein begins in the stomach. And this happens with the release of proteases, which work best in an acidic pH. And if you remember, the stomach has a very acidic pH due to the digestive um, juices in it. So that's the ideal environment for proteases to work. Pepsin, for example, is an example of a um, protease and it works best in pH 2 smaller polypeptide chains are going to enter the small intestine and then be broken down by endopeptidases and these are released by the pancreas and because endopeptidases work best in a neutral environment of around pH 7 the pancreas will neutralize the acids in the intestine so that the endopeptidases can work properly so again proteases are released in the stomach and they function best in an acidic pH and usually will target larger proteins while smaller polypeptide chains enter the small intestine and are then broken down by endopeptidases in a neutral environment. So now moving on to lipids, the breakdown of lipids occurs in the intestines and it begins with fat emulsification by bile. And this is the process of increasing the surface area of fats in the small intestine by grouping them into small clusters. And then the actual digestion of the lipids will be done by lipase, which is released from the pancreas. Also note that bile is released from the gallbladder. And lastly, the nucleic acids. This one's pretty standard. It's just that the pancreas also releases nucleases, and these digest DNA and RNA into smaller nucleosides. So just to summarize what I just covered, Carbohydrate digestion begins in the mouth with the release of amylase from the salivary glands. It also continues in the small intestine where amylase is secreted by the pancreas and cellulose will pass through the body undigested. Proteases will digest proteins in the stomach and that is in an acidic environment such as pepsin and smaller polypeptide chains will enter the small intestine and then be broken down by endopeptidases released by the pancreas and need a neutral environment. And the lipid breakdown will begin in the intestines with fat emulsification by bile, and then will be digested by lipase, released from the pancreas, and nucleic acids will be broken down by nucleases, also released from the pancreas. So those are the main enzymes in digestion. Note that they're pretty much all from the pancreas, but the salivary amylase is from the salivary glands, pepsin is from the stomach, and trypsin, which is responsible for breaking down the shorter chain polypeptides, is from the pancreas. So although they're both proteases, uh, they are not from the same place. So just remember those differences. Next comes the structure of the small intestine. It's composed of four main tissues, which I will discuss from outside to the middle. So serosa is the outermost layer, and so it's a protective layer, and it's reinforced by fibrous connective tissue. The muscle layer is the outer layer of the longitudinal muscle, which is responsible for peristalsis. 
and followed by an inner layer of the circular muscle which conducts segmentation. So the muscle layer consists of both the longitudinal on the outside and the circular in the inside. Then is the submucosa, which is composed of connective tissue that separates the muscles, the muscle layer, from the innermost mucosa. And that brings us to the mucosa, which is a very folded layer that absorbs the material through its surface. And it does that from the intestinal lumen. And you might remember lumen, or it might sound familiar, from veins. It's essentially the inner part where the food is moving. So it, there's, not, there's nothing actually in the lumen because the lumen is where the food goes. So the lumen itself is, um, is not a layer officially. Um, and yeah, so just make sure that you can identify these layers on, on a micrograph or a microimage. Um, and again, these are serosa, the protective layer, the muscle layer of longitudinal and circular, the submucosa, and the mucosa. Based on these diagrams, you may also notice that the circular muscle is slightly bigger, not, not greatly, but slightly bigger than the longitudinal muscle. Now moving on to one of the main ideas in this topic, um, the villi. So the inner epithelial lining of the intestine is highly folded into finger-like structures called villi. In singular, these are referred to villus. And many villi are in the intestinal lumen, and they increase the surface area for the absorption of the materials in the food. And these villi have very specialized features so that they can properly support the process of digestion. First off, they have microvilli, which are villi on the villi, essentially. And these are a ruffling of the epithelial membrane, and that further increase the surface area. So think of your villi having small waves on the surface or on the, on the top bit, um, to allow for increased absorption. Then they have, they're very rich in blood supply. So there's a dense capillary network that can transport the products that are being absorbed. Um, there's also only a single epithelium layer and that minimizes the diffusion distance between the lumen and the blood. Then the, they also have lacteals which absorb lipids from the intestine um, and they bring these to the lymphatic system. And then they have intestinal glands um, these have exocrine pits that release the digestive juices. And lastly, there are membrane proteins that facilitate the transport of digested materials into the epithelial cells. So again, they have microvilli to increase surface area, rich blood supply, so they have the dense capillary network to transport products, single epithelium layer to minimize the diffusion distance, lacteals which absorb the lipids to the lymphatic system, intestinal glands which release the digestive juices through exocrine pits, and membrane proteins to facilitate transport of digested materials. The epithelial lining of the villi also has several structures that help it to absorb digestive materials. So it has tight junctions which creates a impermeable barrier and that separates the digestive fluids from the tissues and that can maintain the concentration gradient. And then important is that epithelial cells will also possess a lot of uh, mitochondria because they need to provide ATP for the active transport. So um, an epithelial cell of the intestinal villi will have a lot of mitochondria, which can also help you identify it um, if you ever get a micro image. So now moving on into greater depth um, of absorption. During absorption, digested food monomers have to pass from the lumen into the epithelial lining of the small intestine. 
The epithelial lining is essentially the first layer of the small intestine when you're going from the lumen outwards. So it's just the lining from the lumen to all the muscles of the small intestine. And in order to, to facilitate this absorption, the monomers have to cross the membrane. So they have to move from the lumen through the epithelial lining. And uh, there are different membrane transport mechanisms that are used to do this. So there's secondary active transport, which is when a transport protein couples the active transport of one molecule to the passive transport of another. So this is known as co-transport. So that means that with the movement of one um, substance, so the active transport of one, another substance can move along passively with that movement. So it's called co-transport. And this applies to glucose and amino acids, which are co-transported across the epithelial membrane by the active transport of sodium ions. So secondary active transport applies to glucose and amino acids. Then facilitated diffusion occurs for the hydrophilic food molecules that have to pass through the hydrophobic portion of the membrane. So the facilitated diffusion will allow the hydrophilic food molecules to pass these hydrophobic parts. And this applies to certain monosaccharides such as fructose, it applies to minerals and some um, vitamins as well. Then osmosis, as we know, is the movement of water. So water will diffuse across the membrane in response to the movement of ions and hydrophilic monomers. So as the movement of ions and hydrophilic monomers occurs, as they are absorbed, water will diffuse as a result because we know that water moves from areas of low solute concentration to areas of high solute concentration. Um, and then the absorption of water and the dissolved ions occurs in both the small and large intestines, so that applies to both. Um, and simple diffusion, this is where hydrophobic materials, so lipids for example, can freely pass through the hydrophobic portion of the plasma membrane. So as I mentioned earlier, facilitative diffusion allows the hydrophilic substances to go through the hydrophobic portion of the plasma membrane, so they need help but simple diffusion means that they can diffuse on their own. So because the plasma membrane has a hydrophobic portion, the hydrophobic materials can diffuse through that freely. So that applies to lipids. And once they're absorbed, the lipids will then pass into the lacteals, um, which we touched on in the structure of the villi. And it does this because it does not transport via the blood. So lipids go to the lacteals, whilst the other um, nutrients and substances will go via the blood. And then for the bulk transport of any um, substances, endocytosis will be used. This is covered in, I believe, the first unit. And what endocytosis does is it allows for the exit and entrance of substances without having to pass through the membrane. So endocytosis refers to the entrance. And what happens is the uh, membrane will surround or invaginate is the official term. Uh, the substances and that way it can form a vesicle which uses the phospholipids to form the vesicle and then that vesicle will transport the um, substances in the cytoplasm. So just remember that the vesicle formation requires the breaking and the reforming of the phospholipid bilayer and in the context of the intestines vesicles usually form around a fluid so a fluid that contains a dissolved material and that would be considered penocytosis. So that's usually what endocytosis is used for in the absorption of um, 
the small intestine. And the reason that they do this is because you can uh, ingest much more in a larger quantity because you don't have to pass it through an individual channel. You can take it all in once. So just to summarize, we had the secondary active transport or co-transport of glucose and amino acids, then facilitated diffusion of the hydrophilic food molecules, osmosis, which is the movement of water, and it is dependent on the movement of the solutes first, and then simple diffusion, which is for the hydrophobic materials. And lastly, the endocytosis, usually of fluids containing dissolved materials. So now moving on to one of the applications in this topic, and this one is about starch and how it is digested. So starch is a polysaccharide and it's composed of glucose monomers. It can be either linear in the form of amylose or branched in the form of amylopectin. So this is review of unit two. The digestion of starch, as we've covered, is initiated by the salivary amylase, which happens in the mouth, and then it continues in the pancreatic am with the pancreatic amylase in the intestines. So this is what we talked about earlier with the enzymes. Starch digestion by amylase doesn't occur in the stomach because the pH is unsuitable for the amylase activity. That's why it only occurs in the mouth and in the intestines. Amylase digests amylose into maltose subunits, which are disaccharides, and then it is fixed to the epithelial lining of the small intestine. Following this, the hydrolysis of maltose results in the formation of glucose monomers. This glucose could then be hydrolyzed to produce ATP, or it could be stored as a polysaccharide, specifically glycogen. The pancreas plays a vital role in the digestion of starch. First off, because it produces the enzyme amylase, which is released into the intestinal tract from the exocrine glands, but also because it produces the hormones insulin and glucagon, which are released into the blood from endocrine glands. So those are the two key functions that it has in the breakdown of starch. The enzyme amylase into the intestine from exocrine glands and hormones insulin and glucagon into the blood from the endocrine glands. And as covered in an earlier topic, the hormones insulin and glucagon regulate the concentration of glucose in the bloodstream. So that wraps up topic 6.1 of digestion. You might have noticed that this connects to a lot and a lot of the other topics. So if things are unclear, I suggest that you go back to those because this one is pretty loaded already. So yeah, I hope this was helpful and I'll see you in the next. Well, I won't see you, but you'll hear me in the next one. <laughs>